Okay. Good morning, everyone. Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We are delighted today to have as a speaker one of our own clinicians, Abigail Zavad from Dartmouth Hitchcock, Nashua, and previously one of our house officers. She'll be introduced to us today by Dr. John Lurie, who, as you know, is the section chief in hospital medicine, and he's a professor of medicine uh, in our department. John, tell us a little bit about Abigail. And there are no declared conflicts of interest. All right. Thanks, Rich. Um, before I introduce Abby, just for the people on the phone, the code for getting your CME credit for uh, today is B as in Bravo, E as in Echo, the number four, and W as in W. <laughs> so uh, it's really a great pleasure for me to introduce uh, Abby Zavod. Um, she got her MD and her MPH from Tufts before doing her uh, internal medicine residency training here in primary care internal medicine. Uh, she then went on to practice at uh, the Princeton University Health System, uh, and then the Leahy Clinic, and then Mass General, uh, before coming and joining the practice at uh, DH in Nashua. She's also on the New Hampshire Board of Medicine and the DH Task Force on Opioids, and shows she's very well positioned to talk to us about this incredibly important topic of the current opioid crisis. So thank you so much for coming, Abby. Look forward to your talk. Can you hear me? Yeah? Good. Okay. Thank you so much. It's so wonderful to be back here again. This is the first time I've been in the auditorium in 16 years, so it's wonderful to be back. Um, so today I want to talk about the primary care perspective on the opioid crisis. Um, this is something that's been on my mind for a long time, um, but really was crystallized uh, in the last few years with the um, rise in deaths, which we're going to get to. So again, um, for the credit for this Medical Grand Rounds, if you need to. So first I'd like to talk a little bit of the history of the crisis, and I like to reference a, one of my favorite quotes, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Um, the first epidemic of opioid abuse actually occurred in the United States during the latter part of the 19th century. So between 1840 to 1890, opioid consumption increased 538%. The peak occurred in the mid-1890s. The primary source of the ep epidemic was iatrogenic use of morphine in combination with the rise and popularity of the hypodermic needle. Many physicians prescribed opioids for pain because they had no way to diagnose or treat pain. We really didn't have a lot of modalities to figure out what was wrong with people back then. So the typical opiate addict at that point was a white woman with a chronic pain disorder. So the discovery of other analgesics, new discoveries in bacteriology and sanitation, and an increasing awareness among younger physicians about the negative consequences of opiates helped to decrease prescribing. So one of the most important lessons from the first opiate crisis in the United States was that with education, physicians and practitioners could and would change their practice. So part two of the crisis brings us forward to about 1986. 
There was a low-quality evidence paper which described the use of long-term opioids in 38 chronic pain patients. This paper concluded that the long-term use of opioids was safe in this population of 38 patients. The paper was then widely referenced to support increasing the use of opioids in non-cancer chronic pain. Over the course of the 1980s, the use of opioids for non-cancer pain increased slowly. However, in 1995, Purdue Pharma launched OxyContin, an extended release formulation of oxycodone, and sponsored over 20,000 educational programs promoting the use of opioids for chronic non-cancer pain. Purdue also donated money to the American Pain Society, the American Academy of Pain Medicine, the Federation of State Medical Boards, JCO, and patient groups. In 1995, the Pain is the Fifth Vital Sign campaign began in earnest and was adopted by JCO and the VA Medical Center. This campaign encouraged treating pain with opioids because pain was felt to be as important as other vital signs. Now remember, this was all based on a study of 38 patients who had chronic non-cancer pain, and it was poorly done. Many physician spokespeople gave lectures to physicians with data based on these poor quality studies showing that the risk of addiction was less than or equal to 1%. So I like to liken this to kind of the perfect storm. So we have an extended release formulation of medication, we have pressure from the government, we have the fifth vital sign, which is the only non-objective vital sign, it's subjective. And this resulted in the promotion of long-term opioid use by pharma and pain organizations, not based on any scientific studies. Increased opioid use and in the inpatient settings um, was seen with uh, the JCO adoption of the pain as a fit vital sign and federally required patient satisfaction surveys. So CMS put a lot of pressure on hospitals. We want you to satisfy this requirement, and we're going to cut reimbursement unless you satisfy this requirement. But the bottom line is, is that no long-term clinical trials have ever been done to demonstrate the safety and efficacy of chronic opioid use in non-cancer pain. For a moment, I just wanted to address the difference between abuse and addiction. Abuse is when people use illegal drugs or illegal drugs inappropriately. Addiction is continued use of a substance despite the negative consequences. Opioids, in particular, are addictive because use causes euphoria, which is a positive effect. Cessation causes dysphoria, and chronic exposure to opioids causes structural and functional changes in the brain, something we'll talk about later called opioid hyperalgesia. The CDC estimates that since 2000, the rate of death from drug overdose has increased 137%, with a 200% increase in the rate of death in involving opioids. During 2014, 47,055 deaths occurred from drug overdose in the United States. It, just from 2013 to 2014, this was a 6.5% increase from 13.8 per 100,000 to 14.7 per 100,000. Now, I'd like to encourage you, if I can find the, ah, there, to remember this per capita number, and this is the United States. We're going to talk about New Hampshire in a little bit. 
In 2014, 61% of the drug overdoses in the U.S. involved some type of opioid, including heroin. More people died from drug overdoses in the U.S. in 2014 than any previously recorded year, and since that time it has continued to increase, although I don't have the definitive statistics for 2015 at my fingertips. From 2000 to 2014, it's estimated that a half a million people have died from drug overdoses. This is a very striking slide showing this is accidental injury death. Drug overdose is a leading cause of injury death and kills more people than car accidents. And you can see that the crossover occurred sometime around here, so 2008. In 2014, there were one and a half times more deaths from drug overdoses than from motor vehicle accidents, and the rate of opioid overdoses in particular tripled. Two factors involved in the increase Number one, the 15-year um, increase in deaths involving prescription opioids. And then the second piece, which is becoming more and more important, is an increasing number of deaths due to illicit opioids driven largely by heroin and more recently by synthetic fentanyl. The five states with the highest rate of drug overdose deaths in 2014 and again, this is where I'm going to bring you back to the United States was about 14.7, West Virginia, 35.5, New Mexico, 27.3, New Hampshire, 26.2, Kentucky, 24.7, Ohio, 24.6. We'll talk in a moment about Massachusetts and the comparison between the two states, but this is very striking that New Hampshire is number three in the country. More statistics from the CDC. I'm going to let you look at this slide for a moment. Um, the darker the red, the higher the per capita rate of um, deaths from drug overdoses in 2014. So impressively, New Hampshire is leading New England. The New York Times did a really wonderful article, um, which is in my slides, about the overdose deaths evolving 2003 through 2014. So if you start at the upper left-hand corner, um, it's again per capita, and you can see the evolution spreading. The red is overdose deaths per 100,000 throughout the years. And so in 2014, this is what the map looks like. So you can see that in New Hampshire, particularly in northern New Hampshire, we have a peak. You can see that in Florida, coming up the coast, there is a known pathway for drugs coming in through here and going up uh, into the kind of Chicago area. So there's been a significant number of um, overdose deaths in this corridor. And then New Mexico, of course, we talked about them having a very high rate. So most of the illicit drugs now are being coming in from Mexico, so down here, and from China, largely on the dark net. So people actually can order these drugs um, over the internet, the, the dark net. Going back to the point about the role of big pharma in this crisis, this is prescription painkiller sales and deaths. And you can see that the two curves mirror each other nicely. So uh, when I saw this slide, it was very striking to me that um, although prescription painkillers are not 
completely responsible for deaths. They certainly are, um, it's, it's very striking that these sales and deaths mirror each other. This slide is fairly complicated, but um, I like to put it in anyway. It shows the sources of the prescription painkillers among past year non-medical users. So if we look on this end, it's people used at any time. These are kind of low users. So these are people used 1 to 29 days in the year, 30 to 99. 100 to 199, and these people are pretty much using every day. So amongst people who are using uh, prescription painkillers for non-medical use, the number one source is prescribed by greater than or equal to one physician. The next most common source is given by a friend or a relative for free. <coughs> So overdoses involving any opioid have really mirrored all drug overdoses, um, again, going up through the years. And these are age-adjusted rates of drug overdose deaths. And uh, we can see that, unfortunately, the opioids are increasing significantly. And then if we look at the breakdown, this is deaths involving any opioid per 100,000. This is natural and semi-synthetic. So these are things that would be prescribed. This is heroin. And this is the fentanyl and tramadol family here. What's uh, striking about this is that this, this curve is expected to kind of start to overtake uh, these other curves, which I will show you when we get to New Hampshire's data. So current statistics for New Hampshire, very sobering. The number of drug-related overdose deaths in New Hampshire increased from 73.5 percent, uh, 70, incre sorry, increased 73.5 percent from 2013 to 2014. In 2015, New Hampshire has averaged 27 drug-related deaths a month. 91 percent of the deaths are related to opioids, especially heroin and illegally manufactured fentanyl. So, I, I happened to be close with the chief medical examiner for the state of New Hampshire, and so he gave me slides from his talk at the governor's summit. So these slides are all taken from him. He said that kind of, he chose to come to New Hampshire as a medical examiner because he thought, oh, you know what, it'll be quiet. It's like, you know, it's a state where not much happens and, you know, people are farmers and whatever. And then he started to see these little peaks, and he became concerned. So he put arrows in where he started to, kind of his radar started to go up. And he told us at the governor's summit that sometime back, like around maybe 2004, 2005, he said, drug deaths are going to surpass motor vehicle deaths. And he predicted this. And then what we've seen is just an exponential growth in the number of New Hampshire drug deaths. The final number for 2015 was 439 deaths which gave 32.9 deaths per 100,000 for people in New Hampshire. Now, compare that again to the national statistic, which I think was 14.7. So New Hampshire, 32.9 per 100,000 in 2014, uh, 2015. So that's a double the United States. So here's one of his slides showing the different um, age ages that are represented. So what I like to take away from here is that really all ages are affected. 
yes, we see in, you know the highest peak is in the 31 to 40s, but we're still seeing 51 to 60 year olds dying. Now, this is drug death data from New Hampshire as of May 2nd, 2016. The highest number of deaths was from fentanyl, and then fentanyl and other drugs. Now, the other drugs that are referenced here are largely benzodiazepines. And this is, I like to talk about the opioid crisis, but what I'd also like to point out is that the second wave of this, besides being a fentanyl crisis and a synthetic crisis, is actually going to be a crisis due to the combination of many of these drugs with other sedating drugs such as benzodiazepines. So I would encourage you to be very thoughtful about use of benzos and other drugs that can potentiate sedation. Heroin actually was a small number so far, heroin and other drugs excluding fentanyl and then heroin and fentanyl. The difference between heroin and fentanyl is that heroin has to be grown. Heroin comes from the poppy. Heroin needs to be produced after you harvest the poppy. Fentanyl is created in the lab. Fentanyl is much cheaper. So if you can produce fentanyl, you can actually um, have a bigger bang for your buck. So what's happening now, unfortunately, in many illicit labs is that they are synthesizing fentanyl. They are also synthesizing new fentanyls, which we are going to talk about, which are much more potent than regular medical fentanyl that we use. These fentanyls are so potent, in fact, that when the DEA goes in to do a drug bust, they have to wear level three biohazard suits. Because even if they get some on their skin, they could have um, a respiratory arrest. They have to carry Narcan with them. These new fentanyls are so potent that at times, um, not one, not two, but maybe eight doses of Narcan need to be used to revise, revive someone who has overdosed. And the other thing that's happening is that the drug dealers are getting clever. They know that oxycodone and oxycontin, it's about a dollar a gram on the street. So what they're doing is they're packaging fentanyl to look like tablets of oxycodone and oxycontin. They're stamping them with the same things. They've got equipment. People are taking these pills thinking that they're oxycodone and they're safe because it's pharmaceutical grade and they're dying because it's fentanyl. So again, here is um, the leading agents up through 2015 in New Hampshire deaths. These are fentanyl deaths. The, this is where oxycodone and the benzos. Now this doesn't show mixes. This is just kind of each agent. So at this point, I'm really hoping that this works because this is another important. Okay, so. We talk about New Hampshire being number three in the country for drug deaths. What can we do about this? Well, we can spend money to try to help with the crisis. So we look at New England. And I hope you can see this slide. I'm going to roll over the bars. This is Connecticut. The total funding per capita for alcohol and drug services is $48.34 per person. We then go to Massachusetts. We're spending $19.37 per person. In Maine, it's $18.86. Vermont, 
$33.03 per person. Rhode Island, $14.32 per person is being spent. But in New Hampshire, we're only spending $8.80 per person to help fix this crisis. So the statistic in 2014 was that we were number three in deaths and number 49 in terms of funding for services. So this is, again, a New Hampshire perfect storm. I now move to Massachusetts. So I give this talk a lot kind of on the border in Nashua at the State House in New Hampshire. And so uh, because I also I'm dual licensed, I like to compare New Hampshire to Massachusetts. So here's uh, some opioid related deaths in Massachusetts, um, unintentional undetermined and opioid related deaths confirmed in estimates going through 2015. The gross numbers are much higher, but don't forget Massachusetts is a bigger state. So when we look at the per capita, for 2015, Massachusetts was definitely climbing. We were up to, I think it's 22.5, but we're definitely nowhere near the 32.9 that we saw in New Hampshire. In terms of new combinations, in Massachusetts, 13% of all overdose cases had benzos in their system. Common Health, which is a blog dedicated to health from WBUR, our public radio down in um, Massachusetts, has a blog and they do a, um, a lot of work on the opioid crisis. And they recently interviewed um, someone who was being treated with methadone. And this person said that a combination that's kind of getting popular amongst users of methadone who are trying to, you know, essentially detox off of heroin or fentanyl or, or prescribed opioids is using methadone with gabapentin, clonazepam, clonidine, and over-the-counter allergy meds. This combination allows them to get a high that's similar to the high that they experienced when they were using um, illicitly. Um, this has definitely made me more aware of kind of my prescribing habits in terms of benzos and in terms of gabapentin. So, in, you know, not that I ever want to deny anyone anything, but if I'm seeing that someone's needing more and more gabapentin, I, I'm kind of thinking about why. So we ask, okay, we're academic. Why don't we look into the literature and see if, as of 2015, there's been any data looking at evidence about the use of opioids. So in 2013, a review from the annals looked at evidence from randomized trials and observational studies that involved adults with chronic pain of more than three months duration who were prescribed long-term opioids. It looked for outcomes related to function, quality of life, abuse, and addiction. They finally found 39 studies that met criteria for inclusion in this review. What they found was that there were no studies of long-term opioid therapy for chronic pain versus other non-opioid treatments that evaluated effects on pain, function, or quality of life. However, they did find that long-term opioid use was associated with an increased risk for overdose, abuse and dependence, fractures, myocardial infarction, and erectile dysfunction. They found that there was sparse evidence supporting the accuracy of opioid risk assessment tools for predicting the abuse and misuse potential, and those were not from reliable studies. They found that no study to date 
evaluated risk mitigation using urine tox screening, the prescription drug monitoring program, and abuse deterrent formulations of narcotics. And they concluded that there was an urgent need for research in these areas. The adverse effects of opioids, again, everyone in this room probably knows about them, but I give this talk to people who are not always uh, practitioners. Respiratory depression, which can lead to death, especially in combination with other drugs, falls and fractures, endocrine effects, constipation and obstipation, opioid hyperalgesia, dry mouth and tooth decay. So the hyperalgesia is an interesting phenomenon where the brain gets rewired to the point that um, you have to just take more drug to kind of feel less pain. However, there is evidence that opioids actually may increase the amount of pain that you're feeling. And so it may have a counterintuitive effect on the brain. The other thing that I like to mention is that with opioids, we don't know who is at risk of addiction. That's part of the problem with the drugs. So not everyone who takes an opioid will get addicted. I like to tell the story of um, a year ago, I had to have a medical procedure, and um, I was sedated with fentanyl and Versed, and I was involved with my work with the opioid crisis already, and I was like, hmm, what's it going to feel like? So I tried really hard to scientifically think, how do I feel? How do I feel? I was having a bone marrow biopsy. How do I, what am I feeling? And I felt the trochanter going into my hip, and then I didn't feel anything. I kind of felt pressure, but I didn't care about it. And then when I was done with the procedure and um, got up and I was in recovery, I didn't feel good. I felt kind of yucky. I felt like I couldn't get my thoughts on straight. You know, I just was like, you know, I, I went to the supermarket and I walked into things. And so um, I was making poor decisions. So I didn't like the way I felt. However, if someone has the brain chemistry or the genetics to become addicted, we don't know that in advance, which is why these drugs, unfortunately, can be so dangerous. We can talk about prevention. Prevention involves multiple layers. I like to describe the opioid crisis as a 20-armed octopus that's covered in Vaseline. Every time you try to grab onto one part of it, it slithers out of your hands. So we can only do so much, but this kind of is applicable to what we can do as practitioners. Primary prevention, it decreases the incidence of a disease or condition before it begins. We can do secondary pre prevention, detecting a condition after it occurs, but before it becomes a serious problem. Tertiary prevention, therapy and rehabilitation for those in whom disease is established. So in primary prevention, which is probably one of the most important messages that I can deliver today, is that we need to prevent new cases of addiction. If clinicians used more non-opioid analgesics and non-pharmacologic treatment, the risk of addiction would decrease. Many states are attempting to pass legislation to control the prescription of opioids, to require education for prescribers, and to require use of the prescription drug monitoring program. We now have the PDMP in 49 states. I believe the only state that does not have one is Missouri. And states are varied in their requirements on how you must use it, but I will get to New Hampshire and Massachusetts. 
secondary prevention. The goal is to screen for dependence early in the course of the addiction. It involves use of collateral information, such as checking the PDMP, urine tox, and old medical records. This also involves kind of using risk screening tools, even though these are not proven. Information should be used as a tool to help guide the patient getting help with pain, to getting help with pain management and resources for getting treatment for addiction. It's unfortunate, but as practitioners, we've become detectives, and we do have to use these collateral sources of information. However, I put it forward that the way that we use the information is the important thing. If we go in and confront a patient and say, look, I found this, that's very different than trying to go in and partner with the patient and say, I see this, I'm worried. I see this, is this something we can talk about? I see this, I want to help. In tertiary prevention, the goal is to guide patients suffering from addiction so that they can avoid the consequences of overdose, medical and psychosocial deterioration, transition to IV drug abuse, and its associated infections. This is where, unfortunately, many, communi many communities, including New Hampshire, are falling short. Resources for addiction recovery are difficult to access, have limited funding, are fraught with this overlay of kind of secrecy and shame and guilt. And to be honest, we're still in our infancy in knowing what the best way to treat addiction is, although we know that to quit cold turkey from opioids is nearly impossible. So all recovery really does have to use a multifaceted approach using medication-assisted therapy and counseling. Pharmacotherapy for addicted patients at this point in time, 2016, includes methadone, which controls cravings that can only be obtained from licensed providers, buprenorphine, suboxone, or subutex. So they make buprenorphine, which is subutex, or suboxone, which is mixed with naloxone to be an abuse deterrent. It controls cravings that cannot be prescribed by nurse practitioners. Federal limits on the number of patients each physician can treat are in place, although they're being reduced. So more physicians are going to be able to prescribe. The issue with these two medications is that we are still stimulating the mu receptor. So these drugs are kind of not allowing the brain to heal. They may be safer than using fentanyl or heroin or other opioids, but they are still stimulating. They are still mu opioid agonists. We then move to naltrexone. Naltrexone was studied many years ago as a drug to prevent alcohol abuse. Um, it was in pill form, it was shelved, it was felt to be not very useful, not wonderful. What's happened in the last few years is that um, a depot formulation has been developed, which lasts for 30 days. So it's really come back into the forefront of treating opioid addiction. It is a mu receptor antagonist. It prevents euphoria. It can potentially have an increased risk of overdose if a relapse occurs because the user does not know how much to use and may easily overdose. So this is actually Sadia, who is one of my lovely medical students from last year, holding up a full-page ad from the Boston Globe about Vivitrol. Vivitrol is this extended release, naltrexone. It's given as a depot injection once every four weeks. 
as I mentioned before, it's a mu receptor antagonist. One of the issues is it cannot be initiated until the patient is opioid-free. They have to have a washout for 7 to 10 days, which is, if you talk to anyone who is addicted to opioids, probably one of the most frightening things that you'll ever talk to them about. When I talk to patients who are addicted and I say, what about Vivitrol? And they say, I know about the washout. They look at me with this incredible fear in their eyes. You can't die of withdrawal from opioids, but you feel so awful you wish you were dead. So this is the stumbling point. But if the patient can get through this, a recent study in the New England Journal was published in March of 2016 showing extended release naltrexone um, in a criminal justice population. It was a great population to study it in because these people were about to be released and so they were opioid free at the inception. It was a five site open label randomized trial. It compared a 24 week course of Vivitrol with usual treatment which was just counseling and treatment programs. The goals were to prevent opioid relapse among subjects studied which were adult criminal justice offenders. Obviously, they need to be opioid-free at entry, and the primary outcome was time to opioid release, uh, relapse. So results over the 24 weeks. Participants assigned to Vivitrol had a longer medium time to relapse, a lower overall rate of relapse, and a higher rate of opioid-negative urine samples. These were all extremely statistically significant. At 78 weeks, which was after the study was over, the rates of opioid-negative urine samples were equal in each group. So unfortunately, the people who they stopped receiving Vivitrol tended to drift back to use. There were no overdose events in the Vivitrol group and seven in the usual treatment group, which is very important because one of the warnings on Vivitrol is this risk of overdose, but this was not seen. Tertiary prevention can also involve needle exchange programs to help decrease the spread of bloodborne pathogens. I gave this talk at the State House in May. And the day after I gave this talk, the House shelved a needle exchange program because it needed more study. I don't know how politically active any of you want to be. I know many of you live in Vermont. But if you feel like becoming involved, start writing letters and making phone calls because this crisis involves more than just death from an overdose. This crisis is going to be a new wave of HIV, a new wave of hepatitis, B and C, and needle exchange programs can really help us decrease that. Naloxone, which is Narcan, can help prevent overdose deaths. It's now being given to lay people and first responders with training when a family member is known to be suffering from addiction. So we look at other states and what they did. In Florida, um, new laws and enforcement reversed trends in oxycodone prescribing. They came down very hard on prescribers. It used to be in Florida that there were pill mills. You could pull up with a van full of people with x-rays. They'd run in, they'd each get 100 oxycodones, run out back into the van, they'd drive north, no more. So they regulated pain clinics, stopped healthcare providers from dispensing um, prescription painkillers in large numbers from their offices, and they saw a more than 50% decrease in oxycodone overdose deaths. Interestingly enough, they did not see an increase in heroin deaths in Florida. Um, the Oregon Health Authority um, decreased uh, 
the rate of overdose poisoning due to prescription opioids and methadone by 58%. They made methadone um, a second, a non-preferred drug. They felt that methadone was too dangerous, so they made it a non-preferred drug under Medicaid. They also established early on a PDMP to track prescriptions. They educated lay people about the use of Narcan, and they did a lot of physician and allied healthcare trainings about safe and effective pain care. So again, this is just CDC kind of highlighted three states. We talked about Florida. So we get to New Hampshire. The, um, New Hampshire and Massachusetts, I like to contrast them. New Hampshire, live free and die. We're very, bless you, independent. We're very kind of, you know, no one should tell us what to do. I mean, I, you know, I was a resident here. I, I know. But um, we very slowly have kind of come out with rules. And the rules have been debated and hotly contested. And my role on the um, New Hampshire Board of Medicine Opioid Task Force is to act as an advisor to the legislature. Because the legislature is not medical, largely. And so they ask us, and we are internists and pain, medic pain medicine docs, and we are nurse practitioners, and we are vets, and kind of all come together to make suggestions. So they came out with the Board of Medicine rules. This is the first set. And next, the next set, 1423, um, is going to come into effect in November. And on September 7th, we are having a hearing at the Board of Medicine in Concord. If you'd like to come down, um, some of the representatives are going to be there to kind of field feedback. But for right now, we must document a physical exam for acute pain, consider the risk for misuse and abuse, and prescribe for the lowest effective dose for a limited duration. Document and use informed consent. Pretty simple. For chronic pain, we have to do all these things. But again, it's kind of general. It's general. Let's contrast that with Massachusetts. What's happened in Massachusetts is we do not live free and die. We're the exact opposite end of the spectrum. Everything we do is highly regulated. Governor Baker who was previously with Harvard Community Health Plan as I believe the CEO saw this crisis and said, you know what, we're doing something. He made emergency rules. He, he made a seven-day limit on initial prescriptions of opiates. You must query the PDMP for every scheduled prescription. You allow for partial fills for, per patient request. If the patient is worried, you can partially fill. Requires the prescribers to complete appropriate training in pain management and addiction, and that is also true in New Hampshire. We must use a risk assessment tool and informed consent and written pain agreement. Requires the Department of Public Health to establish a voluntary non-opiate directive form identifying an individual as someone who should not receive opioids. If you have someone who's doctor shopping and goes to five emergency rooms looking for opioids, physicians and practitioners in Massachusetts can now submit a form identifying that patient as high risk. It establishes a benchmark on which practitioners will be contacted if they exceed a mean or median. Bless you. It requires patients who come into the emergency room with an overdose to undergo a substance abuse evaluation within 24 hours. The patient cannot be discharged before 24 hours or before evaluation, whichever comes first. Exception for an against medical advice, if the patient leaves against medical advice, then the clinicians are exempt from liability. All insurers must cover substance abuse evaluations without prior authorizations. 
and the commission established a study on how to incorporate PM management and safe prescribing practices into student training, which is perhaps one of the most important things we can do and is a message I want to leave you with as an academic institution. So I want to give you a video perspective. So a little um, background on this video. Um, Stat News is a kind of online medical publication. Actually, Tim Leahy writes for them. And they published something recently about um, a couple of kids from Ohio. One was named DJ. DJ uh, unfortunately fell into opioid use and abuse with his friend Justin. He tried to get clean multiple times and was in, unable to. Um, at 21, he fell back into using. And the problem is, is that when people use, they need to use to feel normal. So what patients describe, as you know, is that when they are coming off of their medication, coming off of their high, they feel so bad that they need that drug just to feel normal. Not to feel high anymore, but just to feel normal. So DJ got a job at Tim Hortons, and he was trying to make a go of having a good life. But he felt sick, and he called Justin and said, Justin, I need something. I need something. So Justin went out to their dealer and got him what he thought was heroin. He brought the heroin to DJ, who was working, again, at Tim Hortons, and gave it to him. DJ went into the bathroom, snorted, and then went back to work, and this is what happened. So you can see DJ. He's working. He's making donuts. He passes out. The time is 3.35. His coworker notices him. She does nothing. He's face down in frosting because what he used was fentanyl, not heroin. More time goes by until finally his manager, five minutes from the time that this ends, walked in and saw him face down in frosting and began CPR. He was taken to the hospital and was obviously pronounced dead. This video, when I saw it about a month ago, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't go to sleep because for me it really symbolized this crisis, this beautiful 21-year-old person, the son, someone's son, passed out in a thing of frosting, and no one's helping him. And it really symbolized for me this crisis, because in the time that we have been speaking, three people have died already from an overdose. One person dies every 19 minutes. I've been talking with you for almost 50 minutes. One person every 19 minutes. So in the time we've been talking, three people will have died. But we're not doing a whole lot about it. If, this, if Zika virus was killing one person every 19 minutes, you can bet we'd be talking about it. If ISIS was killing one person every 19 minutes, you can bet it would be front page news. So I don't know why we are not more active about this issue. But I know for me personally, this is where um, my passion and my drive to be involved with this as a primary care physician and as someone uh, working in public health has come from. 
So in conclusion, history has shown us that opioid addiction is not new, and in the past, fixing the problem begins with education. Education involves educating ourselves, our patients, their family members, about the risks and the benefits of opioids. But education also involves a willingness to address uncomfortable issues, even if it's easier to avoid them. I like to conclude the talk with my Hippocratic Oath, which was different than the traditional one, because at Tufts we had Dr. Lasagna's Oath. And I like to talk about this. I will apply for the benefit of the sick all measures which are required, avoiding those twin traps of overtreatment and therapeutic nihilism. I will remember that there is an art to medicine as well as science and that warmth, sympathy, and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife or the chemist's jug. So I encourage you to take that with you as you think about where we are and where we're going. If you're interested, luckily yesterday, the medical examiner's office sent me the latest data on New Hampshire, which I have here. For 2016, we're projected to get to 500 deaths in the state of New Hampshire, which will give us a per capita rate of, I think, 37.9 per 100,000. The deaths, as of right now, 80 are due to fentanyl, 52 are due to fentanyl and other drugs excluding heroin, and two are due to heroin. There are also 101 cases from 2016 as of right now that are pending toxicology because it can take that long for us to get the data back. Fortunately, we've only seen one death from the more potent, the newer synthetic fentanyls. However, um, I just heard today that a shipment was stopped at the border of Canada, which contained one of these newer potent fentanyls. So I, I think it's just a matter of time before we start seeing this entering the mix. Anyway, if anyone's interested, I have this up here. Thank you very much. Thanks, Abby. Have questions? Okay. So, could you talk about the possibility that socioeconomic status has to do with the creation of this disease and the treatment? How do you feel about This disease knows no socioeconomic barriers. I've talked to patients who are high school football stars who had a knee injury and then went on to use because they were given Percocet and they liked the way they felt. Um, we like to think of the traditional addict as someone who's like in a park in, in Manchester shooting up. But unfortunately, this is really transcending. The thing that we are seeing, however, is that people who are better off have better access to treatment. So if you have money, maybe your family can send you to rehab in California. But if you don't, and you're someone who is not in a financially stable way in the state of New Hampshire. Access to treatment is very difficult. Great. Abby, thank you for this eye-opening and very needed discourse. I have a question for you on NHPR this morning. They were talking about how the reimbursement for treatment of addiction by clinicians paid by third-party payers is less than what Medicaid and Medicare will pay, which is a flip of what's usually out there. 
And because of that incredibly tiny reimbursement, most clinicians don't want to get involved with addiction medicine or, or in the treatment of addiction. How, how do you go forward with that? How do you lobby not only what we have trouble with in our New Hampshire legislature, lobbying them for the usual rise of reimbursement for things we do that we'd like to be paid better, but how do you deal with the third-party payers who have the money to pay for this but don't? I think that the answer is that it needs to come from the federal level. I think that, you know, given the craziness that's going on in our election year this year, this issue has been largely lost, although Obama has tried to funnel money towards it. I'm hoping that wherever we get to in the next four years, that significant amount of money will be put towards the opioid crisis. I also think that it's going to require, on a federal level, regulations including regulations of insurance companies and a federal PDMP. So in other words, no longer is it state by state. Because for instance, I can be working in New Hampshire, in Nashua, I have patients who cross the border and get medication, but I don't know about it because I can't access the mass PDMP. So I really think that although there is a lot of resistance to things being federal, I think the answer is going to become we need to have more federal regulation. Those of us who've been in primary care for a long time uh, um, remain saddled with a number of patients often that have been on chronic opioids for years, often at the recommendation of special pain um, specialists um, who have recommended and continue um, on when requested for a repeat consultation to, uh, to do so. Um, they've been stable. They've been monitored intensively, um, and obviously they're miserable if you try to stop them or decrease their dose. Um, recommendations for that class of patients. It's very tough. This is this gray area. Um, sometimes what I like to do is kind of give a mini version of this talk to patients, um, kind of geared to the level of their understanding, and just say, you know, um, we really understand that this might not be the most effective treatment for your pain, and could we rethink that? It kind of reminds me of um, my training here. So I had this fabulous training here, and I came out of training, and I didn't prescribe antibiotics for bronchitis. Okay, I, everyone did a great job. Brian Marsh and his group, I didn't prescribe antibiotics for bronchitis. <laughs> I got to my first job. Actually, it, it my, I worked in a group with older male physicians who if you came in with bronchitis, you got a Z-Pack. And I said, no, you need Advair. And they said, what, what are you doing? What are you, the patients are mad at you. And it took me sitting down and saying, well, you know, there's this thing called C. diff. And there's like altering of the gut flora. And there's yeast infections. And kind of re-educating people. And now... There's been a shift. I don't know if you've noticed, but when people come in with something, they're not like, I need my antibiotic. They're like, I don't want to get C. diff. Because the CDC has come forward and said, oh, too much antibiotics. So I think an educated conversation. I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. I do know that probably the opioids, although they think that they're helping them and, and it is very hard to get off of them, may, they may live a, I, I don't know the answer. Brown. I don't know who Stephen, I don't have a payment answer to that. I drank the Kool-Aid for that first study, uh, which was really a very poor study. Um, 
one of the things with your death rates for overdose, there's also a lot of secondary. So if you look at the number of people, and I don't know if that's included in your study, the results there, but the number of motor vehicle accidents uh, associated with maybe not overdose type of doses, but with secondary alcohol and uh, drugs uh, would make those much higher numbers, I would think. That's a really good question, and actually I was so hoping that Dr. Andrew would be here today, who's the chief medical examiner. And I don't know if they count those. So like, let's say someone gets into a motor vehicle accident. It's not the drug that killed them, but they had drugs on board when they got into the motor vehicle accident that killed them. I don't know if they're included, but it's very, it's very true. It's very, even silly things like falls from a ladder, you know, or a hip fracture that then leads to death from complications. Yeah. I think the rationale is Lacing street drugs with fentanyl, especially this more potent form. It's cheaper. So um, fentanyl is so cheap that. Yeah, but why do it? Uh, to make money. So if you are selling something to someone and you're saying, hey, it's oxycodone, you can charge them $30 for that tablet when it's only 10 cents of fentanyl. So one thing I'm going to mention from the monitoring perspective, um, we've been sending out for many years all of our opioid uh, confirmations to mail. And as of Monday, the mail panel will be updated to now also include fentanyl, so there won't be a requirement to do separate monitoring for fentanyl. Uh, just we'll be sending out an update from the laboratory, and Dr. Stravinsky from the chemistry lab. But I want to make a mention in this forum as well that as of Monday, the new panel at mail will now include fentanyl and also much lower limits of detections for all of the old, old, old opioids in uh, the panel that we've been using. Okay, uh, like David, I've inherited uh, a number of patients with high-dose opiates when I arrived here 13 years ago. more recently, with uh, uh, some of our colleagues leaving, and uh, have struggled with it for, for a while, because I trained before 1995 in partners in pain, and, you know, we just navigate opiates for pain, and it never really felt right. But now the the CDC guidelines that came out in March uh, have proposed a maximal opiate dose. The concept's been out for about 15 years that there's probably a maximal opiate dose. Uh, they propose uh, not going above 15 morphine per day uh, in general, and rarely going over 90 which is about 60 a day of oxycodone. Um, and you know, we have people 10 times that <laughs> for years. Um, and that, I mean, I think there's just increasing evidence with the hyperalgesia that it just doesn't work and that the, the harms are greater than that. And there's a, another interesting article that came out recently that the rate of the overall death, not including o overdose, is doubled if you're on chronic opiates compared to other pain measures uh, or pain um, ways of dealing with pain in case control trial. So, um, so I felt emboldened really just in the last few months to tell these patients that I've given, I mean it's awkward because I've been giving them opiates for over a decade that now it's time to taper and we can go over getting down below the number. Mm -hmm. And it's a challenge. I still struggle with what to do. I mean some Luckily, about half of them have agreed, mm -hmm. but um, when you give the evidence, 
that they actually can feel better. Um, and that this is truly in the best interest. Mm -hmm. But I still struggle with what to do with the I mean, I'm forcing people to mm -hmm. say, I don't want to. Sorry. It's I find that my colleagues are doing that exactly, taking them down, uh, trying to get down to the more meaningful ones that we get here on every day. When they come to the consultation now, this is what's going on. They are, it's working. Uh, and you talk about leaving the government to enforce treatment for addiction. Another step before that would be getting to uh, treat pain. The only thing that's ever been spelled to be effective for training of pain on uh, chronic is cognitive behavior mm -hmm. therapy, and they refuse to pay that. Uh, so it's a hand in hand thing. Yep. Abby, thank you so much for this talk. Um, could you say a word about the uh, you know, reaching into uh, the primary prevention world in terms of uh, junior high, high school. You know, we all know that uh, high schools are the quiet beds of experimentation mm -hmm. and a lot of uh, drugs in this well-heeled community. Uh, efforts to uh, infiltrate uh, that in some, some other way? I think it comes down to education. Um, I think, you know, if, if I could, I, I would go into high schools and just kind of give a watered-down version of this talk and kind of talk about how we don't know who may become addicted. You may take an opioid and you may vomit, but you may take an opioid and you may feel good. I think it also involves a recognition that part of this crisis, which is largely overlooked, is that many people who become addicted have comorbidities in the psychiatric world. So there's depression and anxiety. And these depression and anxiety symptoms are being very effectively treated by their opioids and their benzos. So I think unless we, as a community, embrace treatment of mental illness, we can't fix this. So I think you know they'd really go hand in hand. You know, we've talked a lot about um, in the questions here about the um, outpatient prescription of narcotics. Um, as a hospitalist, though, I wonder a little bit about uh, how much sort of inpatient medicine may be at fault here. I think that over my career, I've seen um, a rapid increase in the doses of intravenous narcotics that we've been giving. But a lot of it, I think, is sort of the classic example. When I was an intern, the dose was 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams IV if you needed it. And now, patients coming in from the ED and then the inpatient wards, um, if you give less than one milligram, it's often two or more milligrams. Um, and, and, I, and I worry that, again, this is the same sort of problem in that um, uh, if, I, if a nurse calls me at 1 in the morning and says, Mr. Smith is in pain, and of course we're, we've got the same issue that pain is the fifth value sign, and we're asking them and they get the score, and then what are we supposed to do about it? And, um, uh, and uh, if I try to use non-narcotics to control the pain, I kind of know that I'm going to get another call 30 to 45 minutes later saying, his pain's no better, his pain's no better, and the only chance of me getting any sleep is to give, is to give Mr. Smith two milligrams of ID dilaudid, and then he sleeps, and then I sleep. And so, but then the question becomes, I don't know if anybody's looked at this to see sort of how much um, the inpatient narcotic use then uh, escalates and sort of starts people down this bad road of they start getting intravenous narcotics and then even if we then when we send them out of the hospital whether that starts to trigger this sort of thing so i completely agree when i trained here it was 97 to 2000 i don't remember 
ordering dilated like that. And actually, when I gave this talk to the primary care residents, they said the same thing. And I was like, really? Because when I was here, it wasn't like that. So I think a couple of things. Number one, Obama just um, created law that takes away the CMS requirement for pain as the fifth vital sign. So hospitals can ask about it, but it no longer will affect us financially, and that's very important. Now, I will also tell you that as a Dartmouth physician, in my, you know, make me really stressed, how am I doing with patients thing, one of the things are is, how am I treating pain? And I don't know if I'm financially dinged, if I, if I get a, a 70, I don't know, but I shouldn't be. And I'm going to plead with you to speak with administration. I'm probably going to you know, get fired for just saying this, but please no make it no so that we don't, okay? Because we shouldn't. This is, you know, this is like a kickback system, and we shouldn't be, this shouldn't be part of how we are paid. Um, that's number one. Number two, I would put the situation that maybe you shouldn't sleep. I hear you, but this is a much longer conversation. This is just like the antibiotic conversation. When I was having the antibiotic conversation with patients, it wasn't just write a prescription and let them out of the room. It was sit with the patient and say, this is why I think this. It doesn't make me popular, but I can go to sleep knowing that I did the right thing. I just have one quick little comment, actually, for this, is that one of the things I'm a nurse practitioner in the palliative care field and have been prescribing for a long time, and we're looking at this in our own field and looking at ways to um, add universal precautions for all of our patients because we're seeing a lot of patients who are now surviving cancer, mm -hmm. have chronic pain, and are dealing with opioid um, use and high doses, and we're trying to do weaning and all of that. But one of the things I do want to say that everybody should think about is there are medications that are very well liked, and they're doing likability studies. And so if you want to decrease the risk of likability and addiction, use morphine over oxycodone and Dilaudid, which are medications that are more likable. People feel that high immediately triggers that system in our brains. So think about morphine. Morphine's a great you know, use of medication. It's cheap, and it doesn't have the sort of uh, addiction potential that Dilaudid and oxycodone do. And we send patients out of the hospital on these higher likable drugs. So that's just a little soapbox on my, my part. All right, we're at time. Anybody has other questions? I'm sure everybody will stay around for 15 minutes and after. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.